Freedom, a beautiful word, longed for today more than ever. And now, what will you do? Will you fight or retreat? When challenges are set before you, will you lead with faith or by sight? Will you act with both kindness and courage? With might and compassion? See a king through the eyes of a child who finds beauty in brokenness and strength in weakness. A great king wields both the heart and sword. Find hope in a king that reveals the true path of victory. Hello, thanks for tuning in. You may have noticed that today's service is all in black and white. Let me tell you, this is intentional. Today we're talking about brokenness. And today we mourn, we lament over the condition of our world and also over the condition of our own hearts. We've seen the, uh, the hero side of David's life as we've been talking about his life for the last several weeks. But we have yet to see the dark side of David's heart and David's life. Sometimes we think that evil and, and, and bad things, they only exist out there in the world, but the reality is that evil exists in every human heart, and, and David is a vivid illustration of this truth. And so our hope today as we read the text is that we'll learn that the, the seeds of evil that exist in David's heart, that we realize it, that they exist in our hearts as well, and we'll also learn why brokenness is the only inappropriate response to our sin and to a holy God. So today we're going to be looking into David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so if you have your Bible at home, you can open it and turn there. You can read along on the screen. We're going to be reading chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. So will you read God's word with me? And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. And prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. Today we will see that as we reflect upon our sin that there is reproach necessary, that there is repentance necessary, and ultimately, there's restoration. Well, friends, if evil is going to be restrained in our lives, and we're going to see the best version of ourselves come forth, we have to be open to reproach. In this passage, God reproaches David. And what I find interesting is in the way in which God reproaches David, we can learn a whole lot about ourselves. So today, we're going to learn why God reproaches David, 
and how God reproaches David. Why does God reproach David? Well, David has done a horrible thing. He has coveted a woman who is not his wife. He has pursued this woman. He has slept with this woman. He has gotten this woman pregnant. And in the attempt of covering up his sin, David not only lies, but he murders this woman's husband. This woman's husband is a man by the name of Uriah the Hittite. Who was Uriah the Hittite? Uriah was a man that joined David when David was out in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul. Uriah protected David with his life and even risked his own life for David's sake. And this is how David repays this man. And so God, right there in verse 1, sends Nathan the prophet over to David to confront him. Right there in that very first line, there's so much truth packed in that we have to take a little bit to break it down and digest. First, the reason why God sends Nathan to David to reproach him is because God sees everything. Friends, you may hide your sin from your closest friend. You may even hide your sin from your spouse, but you can never hide your sin from God. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 18, we read, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eye of him who we must give account. So here is David. He is in the throne room, probably forgotten what he has done, conducting business as usual, and then boom, he's exposed. When I was a kid, I remember my father taking me and my brother to the mall to buy an ironing board for my mom. We got into the mall, and right away, we purchased the ironing board that my mom wanted, and my dad came to me and my brother, and he said, hey, boys, go take the ironing board back to the car. On our way back to the car, my brother and I, we thought, hey, maybe we should start driving the car around the parking lot of the mall. Now, keep in mind, I was 10, and my brother was 8. I encouraged my brother to get into the car, and I stood outside giving my brother directions. I said, turn on the engine. He turned on the engine. I said, uh, press on the gas pedal a couple times. He did that. I said, now step with your left foot on the clutch. He did that as well. I said, put the car in first gear. He put the car in first gear. And I said, slowly remove your left foot from the clutch pedal and step on the right pedal, which is the gas. Well, he did that abruptly, and the car took off, and it hit the car in front of us, the row in front of us. And as you can imagine, there was a great multitude that gathered around us. We were bawling. We were crying. We were well. We didn't get hurt. And the securities were with us, and, and they were asking us, where are your parents? And we said, my dad is in the mall. And he said, go get your father. And it was crazy that we had the opportunity to go in the mall to fetch my father without any adult accompanying us uh, inside. Uh, we get to my dad, and my dad asks us, so did you guys do what I asked you to do? And we said, yeah, we did. So my dad said, hey, let's grab some ice cream and let's have some fun. So for two hours, we were walking around this mall with my dad. We had forgotten what had happened until my dad said, hey, boys, it's time to go home. And when we got there, Everybody was there waiting for us. We were completely exposed. Friends, let me tell you something. You may be living the best time of your life right now. You may be having ice cream at the mall, or you may be in your courtroom. But sooner or later, your sin will catch up to you, 
you will be exposed because God knows everything. See, God not only knows everything, but God is also real. This story perfectly showcases what it's like to have a relationship with the real God. Sometimes he will come into your life and he will contradict you. Sometimes he will come into your life and he will disagree with you. Sometimes he will come into your life and reproach you like he's doing here with David. Why? Because he is real. He is a real person. You guys are married to a real spouse, aren't you? How does it go? Does your spouse always agree with you? Absolutely not. Why? Because you are not married to a Stepford wife. You are married to a real wife. We don't have a Stepford God. We have a real God. I remember what Anne Lamont used to say that if you have a God that dislikes all of the people that you dislike, who agrees with all of the things that you do, you can rest assured that you have created God in your own image. And so David is reproached by God. We can see God's love showcased in the way in which he approaches David. See, because the intention is not to hurt but to heal, not to condemn but to convert, Nathan doesn't walk into the courtroom of David pointing his finger at him, saying things like, you are a murderer, you are a liar, you are an adulterer. See, had he done that, David would have raised all sorts of defense mechanisms and he would have never experienced conviction of sin and repentance. So Nathan comes into the room with a posture of love filled with wisdom. See, Nathan knew David. He was David's personal advisor. And he also knew what was happening inside David's heart. He knew that David was a shepherd. And so the illustration that he uses to build this case and, and this story does not come from the sports world, but it comes from the shepherding and the sheep world. He also knows that inside a man's guilty heart, there's always this desire to cover up their wrongdoing by overcompensating in other areas of life. What Nathan does to David is he puts a mirror right in front of him so that David is able to see not only his actions, but he's able to see his heart. And because of that, because of that approach, David is convicted of sin and then he repents. So he reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 2, that it's God's kindness, not God's anger, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we remember also what is said in John 3, not 16, but 17, that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. See, truth comes to David filled, dressed in love. See, you cannot have love without truth. Love Without truth is not love, and truth without love is not truth. We need truth, but we also need the truth to come to us in love. Let me draw a couple applications out of this. First, we all need people in our lives that love us enough to tell the truth. The biggest flaws that I have that you have are flaws that go unchecked. It's because 
we are not self-aware of our behavior, of our actions, that we keep on these patterns of wrongdoing and wrong behavior. See, we need Nathans in our lives that can come to us in love and confront us of the truth, with the truth. Do you run from people like that? Or are you welcoming people like that into your life? My encouragement to you today is go get some Nathans. Go be a Nathan to somebody. There's no way we can grow and we can restrain evil in our lives, remember, unless we are open to reproach. But also I believe that we are living historically and globally a David-Nathan moment. Could it be possible that God is using this season of our lives in our world to confront us with our sin, to reproach us of our wrongdoing? See, not every one of us was exposed to this virus, corona, but all of us, we've been exposed by this virus. And if we are humble enough to look underneath the surface of our lives, to allow our hearts to be uncovered, we may be able to find hope and healing. This past week, I came across this beautiful poetry written by this seminary student by the name of Sarah Burns. She's not well known, but her words were certainly powerful and they spoke to me. I want to read a little bit to you today. She says, Corona is exposing us, exposing our weak sides, exposing our dark sides, exposing what normally lays for beneath the surface of our souls, hidden by the invisible masks we wear. Now, exposed by the paper masks, we can't hide far enough behind. Corona is exposing our addiction to comfort, our obsession with control, our compulsion to hoard, our protection of self. Corona is peeling back our layers, tearing down our walls, revealing our illusions, leveling our best laid plans. Corona is exposing the gods we worship, our health, our hurry, our sense of security, our favorite lies, our secret lusts, our misplaced trust. Corona is calling everything into question. What is the church without a building? What is my worth without an income? How do we plan without certainty? How do we love despite risk? Corona is exposing me, my mindless numbing, my endless scroll, my endless scrolling, my careless words, my fragile nerves. We've all been exposed, our junk laid bare, our fears made known, the band-aid torn, the masquerade done. So what now? What's left? Clean hands, clear eyes, tender hearts. Now listen to this. What corona reveals, God can heal. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Repentance. It's turning away from sin and returning to God. Uh, I believe that repentance is one of the most misunderstood and neglected necessities of the Christian faith. Many of us view repentance as simply rethinking our sin. We rethink it because the consequences that we face. A general playbook would be something like this. We sin, whether through action or through thought or emotion or neglect, and then we recognize our sin, typically because we face the consequences, and then we offer a prayer 
of confession. Many times our repentance is even more scaled back than that. Our repentance is sinning and then recognizing the sin because of the consequence and then moving on because we sin every day. Everybody sins every day. And so what's the point in really thinking about it? What's the point in really reflecting upon it? What's the point in doing anything? I'm going to pray a thousand million prayers of confession. Let me move on and just receive forgiveness and grace. The Apostle Paul has a prophetic word for us on the topic of repentance. He says this in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you presume upon his kindness? I know I do many times. Do you treat repentance like a passing thought or the simple action of rethinking your sins so that you don't face the same consequences? But the Apostle Paul says, don't do that. Repentance is presuming upon God's kindness, recognizing it, and then reaching a change in direction a turning from your sin and returning to God. And God's desire is for you to reach repentance. He's leading you to that place. So how do you reach repentance? Well, in three ways. The first is you have to reflect, you have to receive, and you have to respond. Here in this passage, we see David reproached by Nathan. And he then begins to reflect on his sin. He sits in it. You see, we all need Nathans, like Pastor Felipe said, in our life to expose our sin, to reproach us so that we actually can reflect upon it, that we can sit in it, that we don't just move on from it because we sin all the time and everybody sins, so I don't even want to think about it. We have to reflect. We have to sit in it. And David does that. As he hears about his sin and the effect that it has had on other people, the effect that it has had on him and ultimately the offense that it is to God. David hears from Nathan that God has richly blessed him, that he anointed him at a young age to be king, that he protected him from Saul, that he gave him a great family, and that he would have done even more. But what did David do? He presumed upon God's kindness and upon God's grace, and he's reproached. And he begins to reflect. He begins to think. He doesn't run away from it. He doesn't move past it. He sits in that. Acknowledging his sin. Processing his sin. And it leads him to receive the full weight of it. You see, we have this privilege to hear David's prayer in the midst of this season. As David is being reproached by Nathan, and as he's reflecting upon his sin, we actually see his prayer to God in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, he says that before he was reproached, that before he reflected upon his sin, he kept silent. He kept silent, and it was as if his bones were wasting away. He says he felt like he had a weight upon his shoulders, that his strength was being dried up. You see, when you just treat your sin as something that happens all the time and you keep silent, 
and you don't reflect upon it, and you don't receive reproach, it will feel like you have a weight upon your shoulders, like your strength is being dried up, like your bones are wasting away. And as David reflects and then he receives the weight of it, he says this in Psalm 32, the beginning of verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, God, and I did not cover my iniquity. I acknowledged it and I did not cover. I reflected upon it and I received it. I didn't try to spin it. I didn't try to manipulate it. I didn't try to justify it. I didn't try to blame it on someone else or something else. I didn't hide it at all. I didn't cover my iniquity. I think this is for many of us where the path towards repentance turns into rethinking. Where we begin to, instead of moving towards genuine repentance, just begin to think about changing some of our behavior so we don't have the same consequences. Because to really receive the weight of your sin, the offense of your sin, not just on others, but the offense to God, is to expose your brokenness. It is to not hide it. It is to not justify it. It is to not blame it on someone or something else. It is to expose it. And that's a painful process. And David here does not hide it. He doesn't turn to rethinking. He receives it. Are you processing your sin and reflecting upon it and receiving it in a way that you can acknowledge that you're broken? Where you can say, I'm not the victim. I'm the assailant. That the consequences of my sin grieve me. But what grieves me more is the offense that it is to God. You see, this is what happens with David. As he reflects and as he receives, he obviously understands the effect on his, of his sin on other people. He sees the effect on his own life, but he ultimately is grieved at the offense to God. You see, true repentance has a high value of God. True repentance has a high value of God. If you have a refusal to repent or a reluctance to rep repent, or your typical modus operandi is to just rethink your sin and change your actions and your attitudes so you don't face the consequences, it's because you don't have a high value of God. It's a form of idolatry. It is the elevation of yourself and your comfort and your need to justify your actions and your pride, instead of giving God the glory He deserves and acknowledging that as an unholy and as a broken person, you have offended a holy God. David receives this. He sits in this. You see, repentance is contrition and not attrition. Attrition is regret over your sin for fear of consequences. It is to feel bad about your sin. It is, to, it is to not want to make that same decision because you escaped a consequence or you faced one. That's attrition. Contrition is to regret your sin because you've offended God, because you've presumed upon God's grace. And David begins to reflect and receive that, that he has offended God. That's why he says in the passage in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against you, Lord. 
Not against other people, though he certainly has. Ultimately, I've sinned against you. And he begins to confess his sin. You see, you can repent of sin, quote-unquote repent of sin, and if, if it's motivated by fear, it's just simply a lifestyle change or an attitude change that you don't face the same consequences. But true repentance begins in the head as you reflect upon your sin. It moves to your heart as you feel the weight of your sin, and it ultimately stops you in your tracks. You put your heels down, and you turn your direction. You change your heading. It goes from your head to your heart to your heels, and it changes your heading back to God. It's a turning away from sin and returning back to God. When you really do reflect upon your sin, and when you receive it, it causes you to respond. And ultimately, to respond with genuine confession. David here says, I've sinned against you, God. He says in Psalm 32, this prayer that he prays in the midst of this, he says, I confess my transgressions to you, the Lord. It is to confess that you have sinned ultimately against God. And confession is not a rote prayer. It's not a nightcap. It's not like I'm going to sin a million times today, so every night before bed I'm just going to throw up a prayer of confession for general sins and then kind of move on. Confession is the release of a weight. It is to let it go. It is to hand it over to God. You see, when David kept silent, his bones were wasting away. He felt a heaviness on his shoulders. But now, as he's reflected and received and responded with confession, he's handing his sin over to God, who he has ultimately offended. And Nathan says to him, the Lord does not count your sin against you. What a promise. That when we respond by confessing to God that we have offended Him, that we are broken, that we don't cover it, we don't hide it, we receive it, we reflect upon it. That God's promise to you and to me is that He takes it, that it's done, that it's finished. That we can release that weight, we can take that heavy burden off of our shoulders and hand it to God through confession. That we are secure in the finished work of Christ. That we receive the grace of God because of what Christ has done for us. So we can actually run to confession and know that we can let go of it. And that God will take it from us. That he does not count it against us. You see, when you marvel at forgiveness, it leads you to the ultimate response of repentance. Which is to change the direction that you're heading. To turn away from your sin and return to God. But... That change in your life or your actions or your behavior does not come because you're motivated by fear, but you're motivated and marveling at the forgiveness of God. Here's how David ends his prayer in Psalm 32. He says this, Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He goes through this painful period where he has sinned against many people and he's ultimately sinned against God and he is reproached and he reflects upon it and he receives the weight of it. He covers nothing up and he responds by confessing to God. And when he hears that his sin is not counted against him, he is full of joy. He changes his direction. He returns back to God. He shouts songs of praise because it's finished and it's done with. True repentance 
is motivated by the forgiveness of God. David shows us that. So here's a question. Why don't we repent? Why do we sometimes just rethink our sin and change our our behavior so that we don't face consequences? Why do we just kind of throw up a rote prayer because we sin all the time and we don't really want to feel the weight of it? I think it's because we have placed our identity in someone or something other than Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. It's because we don't have our identity rooted in the forgiveness of God. We have allowed identity fraud. We have given away sensitive information about ourselves to other people and to other things. We have given away the password of our heart and our worth. And we have replaced our identity with false claims, with fraudulent claims. Church, your value is not determined in your ability to appear skilled and unique. Your success is not determined by your ability to appear competent. Your worth is not found in the praise and affirmation of others. Your goodness is not decided by your clean reputation. And your attractiveness is not found in the number of likes you get and the number of invitations and flirtations you get. Your identity is rooted in Christ and the cross That you are forgiven and that you are free because of what Jesus has done for you. You are no longer the old self. You are a new creation. Don't live like the old self. Live like the new creation. You belong to God, not the opinions of others. You are his. You are loved by him. He invites you to confess. He gives you the freedom to reflect upon your sin. To not cover it up. To not hide it. To receive the weight of it, and then to cast it to him in confession and return to him knowing that you're coming to a loving father who invites you to himself. You see, God's kindness, church, leads you and me to repentance. Would we be people that repent, that turn away from sin and return to a loving God who will restore us? Well, church, this week is an exciting week for my family. My, my oldest son, Austin, turns 22 years old. And uh, it's exciting because at about 17, 18, 19-ish, uh, we had a rough go with him. I mean, I would often remember saying to him, Austin, the choices that you're making, choices in lifestyle, choices uh, with friends will, will only lead to misery. Well, the, only, uh, the other day we were in our backyard and I was just, you know, probing him and asking questions, doing what dads do, uh, asking him about school, how are you doing in school, You've been dating this girl for a while. You're going to marry her. You know what's going on. And and he abruptly cuts me off. And he tells me something that I thought he would get later in life. He said, Dad, I'm sorry. I said, sorry for what? He says, Dad, I'm sorry for, for the things that I did a couple years ago. Every time I think about what I did, I start to cry. He says, thank you. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for not throwing me out on the street like I deserved. And of course, we we both started to cry like an episode of Gilmore Girls. And, you know, because he was finally realizing the brokenness of what he did. Finally realizing the impact of of his choices that, that not only had on his life, but the life of those around him. And that our relationship was being restored. 
You know, a lot of people, especially believers, they don't have the categories to handle uh, uh, the consequences of their own sins in their life. And so they'll either underestimate the preciousness of forgiveness or they'll accuse God of punishing sins that he's already forgiven. And so what happens as a result is they either lean too heavily on the Father's forgiving tenderness to the exclusion of the Father's forgiving toughness. Well, if you're following along in verse 14, notice what Nathan says to David here. Even though the the sin is taken away and the death sentence is removed, Nathan says to David, he says this, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so we got to always remember this. Being forgiven doesn't mean the absence of painful impact. Yes, there's grace, and God gives you grace. But what that means is that God gives you grace so that you don't have to die for your sin, as he tells him in verse 13 here. God gives grace, but what that means is that God's grace will give you the strength to face the consequences of your sin. God gives grace, but what that means is that God will give you grace so that you can freely choose to fall in line with his purpose and his plan for your life. Just because we confess our sins doesn't mean that they never happened. Grace never means that you're off the hook for the consequences of forgiven sin in this life. God, he's ever ready, and he will always and completely forgive sin when there is confession and whenever there is genuine repentance, but he never removes the consequences. And here's why. Here's why he does it. He wants to sanctify the forgiven sinner. And he wants to show the forgiven sinner the painful impact that his, his or her choices can make. Because it's at this point in David's life that things will never be the same again. Just one moment, one little moment of pleasure brought upon the death, not only of an infant son, but David's oldest son, Amon, would, would, would rape his half-sister, Tamar. David's other son, Absalom, would get angry at Amon and would conspire to kill him. Absalom would, would then lead a rebellion against his father, David, and then would be murdered by David's nephew, Joab. A lot of smoke. And after all this smoke is cleared, not just one dead son, but David had four dead sons, a kingdom in shambles, a tarnished reputation, a disgraced daughter, and a trusted counselor who would kill himself. Even though David would be the one who sinned, he affected so many innocent people around him because being forgiven doesn't mean the absence of painful impact. David here would reap a bitter harvest. Maybe that's you today. You're just reaping a bitter harvest for the choices that you've made. But watch this. He responds to his sin and to his brokenness appropriately by worshiping God and ultimately being restored with God. Let me tell you why brokenness is an appropriate response to our sin. Verse 20, David gets up and he worships the Lord in God's house And a year later, he would pen one of the most beautiful pictures of what brokenness is, thinking about this very moment when he writes Psalm 51. Let me me read a little bit about Psalm 51. I'll read selected verses here. Here's what he writes. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundance mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. Thank you, Nathan. 
Thank you. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Did you know that our sins have memories? A year later, he's sitting up here remembering his sins is ever before him. It's not that God uh, 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 wants to bring these sins up to mind. In fact, God doesn't bring your sins up to mind anymore. In essence, he forgets about them, and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. But we don't forget because we're not designed that way. We're not created to forget. Every time we sin, we create a snapshot, a memory, a panorama that stays with, our, that stays with us for years and years and years. And Christians walking around talking about their sin like it never happened. And here's why this is a, a gift in our lives, church, the gift of, of not forgetting. Because if we could forget our sins, how would, we, how would we testify about the goodness of God? If we could forget our sin, how would we be warned not to do them again? How would we have joy and victory over sin? How would we know that the Holy Spirit is producing growth in our life if we could never remember our sin? And to be clear, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about wallowing in our sin or living in our past or feeling bad. I'm talking about that moment when God gets you alone in the closet and you fall to the, to, to the floor on your face and you say, God, thank you. Thank you for restoring my relationship with my son. Thank you, God, because when I couldn't see a way through it, you made a way. God, thank you for healing me from this disease. God, thank you for bringing me to the end of myself, not because I prayed a prayer, not because I rededicated my life to you, but because, listen, it's not I. It's not I. Anything that I can do is broken, broken, Lord. It is you. It is you, and I won't stop pursuing you. And I won't stop chasing after your heart because I've seen the things that you can do. Anything that I can do is broken and insufficient. But I've seen the things. Church, may we never forget. And may we never, be, never stop being broken over our sins. And may we never stop realizing the incredible distance that God traveled to make you his child, to restore you, and to redeem you. Appreciate that verses 23 and, 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 and 24 here, or rather 24 and 25, God gives David another child and he names him Solomon, which means peace. Nathan would come and see this baby and give him another name. He names him Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. Blessings of forgiveness and restoration, bringing them into a new season of favor yet again. And of all the sons, of all the sons that David had, the lineage of the future Messiah, Jesus, would come through Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, whose father was Uriah, who was murdered by David, showing us that the lineage of Jesus, the lineage of our Savior, is a lineage of restoration, a lineage of redemption, and a lineage of grace. And here's why this matters. If you're wondering, so what? Here's why this matters. It matters because our journey doesn't end with our consequences. The last and final great step in this path of restoration is the hope of God's redemption from the consequences of unforgiven sin. See, the reason that God would put away David's sin is because God sees down through the centuries in the death of his son, Jesus, who would die in David's place so that God's, or rather David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work would unite David to Jesus. God didn't sweep David's sin under the rug. 
but he counted it as Christ's sins. And he counted Christ's righteousness as David's righteousness. And so God maintains perfect righteousness and perfect justice while at the same time displaying and showing mercy to those who give their faith in Jesus and who place their faith in Jesus no matter how many sins or how monstrous our sins may be. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you that when you got saved, you would never fail God again, but that just isn't true. But here's what I can promise you. When you do fail, and you will, when you fail, God will help you through the processes of confession and repentance and restoration. And here's the best part. He'll even keep you. He'll even keep you through the consequences of your sin, the consequences that your sin brings into your life. That's the promise of grace, and that's the promise of our Heavenly Father. Well, I pray that you were challenged today and that the kindness of God was experienced by you, moving you towards repentance. It's important that we personally repent, but it's also important that we corporately repent. So this past week, we recorded a prayer with 27 leaders and pastors here from Miami-Dade, where we come together personally convicted of our sin, and we approach God in a posture of repentance. So watch this prayer. This time and season, search our hearts, O Lord. Convict us of our sinful actions and motivations. Together we corporately confess. We confess our tendency to see your church as our church, that we are more concerned with building our kingdom than your kingdom. Confess our territorialism, that we compare, covet, and compete more than collaborate with one another. We confess that our focus and our efforts are at times more about building a bigger congregation than building a better city. Father, forgive us and fix our eyes on Jesus. May our ministries shine more of his light than our light. May we decrease so that you may increase. Fill us with your love and compassion for our church and city. May your will be done in Miami as it is in heaven. Spirit, make us make known to us your deep well of wisdom. May we need, may we lead not on our own understanding. May we be sensitive to your leading. Give us courage to submit to your will. Remind us that our identity is in you, Jesus, not our work. That our worth does not come from our faulty performance, but from the perfect performance of Christ. Father, teach us how to work together for the kingdom. Give us a vision for unity. Remind us that we are one body and one family. Grant us clarity on the path forward for your glory. Equip us for the journey ahead. Give us provision for your mission. Awaken in us a greater desire to see our city changed by the power of the gospel. That Miami will look more like your heavenly city in the earthly cities of men. Awaken in us a desire of prayer. May prayer become a first priority for our churches and in our life. Awaken in us a heart for those in the margins. Give us great compassion for the social, the cultural, and the spiritual outcast. Awaken in us the courage to fight for justice. 
Give us a prophetic voice in our days to lead your church in the path of righteousness. Give us hunger for your will and your word. Father, we seek you through repentance. May our whole lives be one of repentance. We repent of materialism. Repent of consumerism. We repent of nationalism. We repent of denominationalism. We repent of racism. And we repent of judgmentalism and we repent for self-righteousness. We repent of putting our hopes in anything and anyone besides you, Jesus. Father, we return to you. We find rest at the foot of the cross where we are loved and forgiven. We recover our identity in the belovedness of Jesus. We find our mission in the mission of Jesus. We find hope in the spirit of Jesus. We find hope in the resurrection of Jesus and shall our longing be satisfied and our peace be made perfect.